some of it and take, uh, and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become one and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Pray with me if you would just for a moment before we consider this. God, we come into your very presence as we have opened your word and we ask for you to speak to us through your Holy Spirit. He would come uh, walk down these aisles into our seats, even into our hearts, that we might understand uh, this word. Thank you for Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, by means of introduction uh, to this passage, as we talk about uh, this idea tonight, that Jesus has come to bring joy. That's what we're talking about tonight is Jesus has come to bring joy. And so I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story about uh, the joy that I didn't have for much of my life. I grew up, uh, became a Christian at a young age. Uh, I don't know exactly when. I had several different kind of walk-the-aisle campfire experiences. So I don't know. Uh, but I became a Christian at a young age. And I would say that by and large, until I was probably a junior in college, um, my life was, it would have highs and lows. And so I would have some happy times. But there wasn't the kind of resounding bass note of joy in my life until, this is going to sound so backwards, until I was a junior in college, like I said, and I started hearing the gospel preached, which put, um, it it, it was talking a lot more about sin and about my problems uh, as a person, how I didn't match up to God's standard. And that sounds very backwards, doesn't it? Because you would think that when you start talking about sin and the bad news that you'd come lower and lower and think less of yourself and there'd be less joy. But see, what happened also alongside that is the, the person who was teaching me these things came alongside and was showing me the beauty of Christ. And what he was doing is he was getting me from looking at myself and my circumstances and all of these things that I was doing for God, like leading Bible studies and going on mission trips and uh, serving the poor, doing all these things that I had done, that I had sought these things to give me joy. And what this guy and this pastor was telling me to do is, no, 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 you have to look at Jesus. You have to look at what he has done for you if you're ever to have a deep, lasting joy. And tonight, what I want to do is I want us to see that we're going to, that as Jesus comes to this party and as he changes this water into wine, we're going to see that he brings joy in three ways. The first way he brings joy is that he satisfies our deepest needs. The second way that Jesus brings joy is that he sets apart things that are common for uncommon use. And the third way we see it is that Jesus comes and serves us in abundance. He serves us in abundance. So to begin, he satisfies our deepest deepest needs, and this brings us joy. Well, uh, at the beginning of this passage, there's an obvious problem, isn't there? Um, They're at this party. Jesus, his mom, and Jesus' disciples, and likely tons of other people are at this party, a wedding reception uh, in Cana of Galilee. Now, the problem is that the uh, the bridegroom, the person who's throwing the party, he's run out of wine, right? And it's, uh, it may seem to us kind of silly that this is uh, worthy of Jesus' mom coming over to him and drawing this big attention. But you've all been to a party or a grand opening at a restaurant, or I, I couldn't stop thinking about friends who tell me they're going to have buffalo wings at their house, and I show up and there's three left. 
And that makes me really mad. So that's what I've got in my mind. But you've all been somewhere where there's been this promise of a feast, of tons of everything. And when you get there, there's just not, right? And uh, you kind of, everybody's kind of looking around thinking, yes, yeah, it's going to end early. Uh, we're going to be done by 8.30 here. Well, uh, something like this has happened at this party. We don't exactly know, but uh, maybe 300 people sent in their RSVPs, and there were 500 that came, which if you've ever planned a big event, that's a disaster, right? That's when um, you see the coordinator of the event, their heart's just like about to explode because they don't know what to do. Something is going on like this. The wine has run out early. Okay, now this um, would have been a problem for this guy, and we need to talk about the two different kinds of needs that he had. The one is the very basic surface-level need. He needed more wine. He needed more wine. The party is about to die, right? And the DJ isn't even to the second set yet, all right? The party is about to die. This guy needs more wine. What I want to call this, I want to call this kind of a felt need or a presenting need, that this is something that you can just look very plainly at the story and say, yeah, obviously, this guy needs, uh, needs more wine. Let's think about it like this. What do homeless people obviously need, right? What do homeless people, they need food. They need clean water. They need somewhere where they can sleep for the night. They need uh, just kind of these basic sustenance level things. Okay? The second kind of need I want to talk about is a real need. Okay? And these may not always be as obvious. It's not as obvious in this story. They're not as obvious in our lives. And uh, to use our homeless guy again, they're not as obvious in those lives. What does a homeless person really need? What is his real need or her real need? A job. (laughs) right? A home. They need someone to bring them in. They need some means that can then support them, that they can support themselves by and get food and get the water and get the shelter and all these things. They need a job. They may need some counseling that can get them into a job, some job training. They need something that is more, uh, it's deeper than just the felt need. Well, in this story, um, actually, let me back up. When my wife and I were getting premarital counseling, I'm not going to say anything crazy, Sarah, I promise. Um, we had a, a pastor who was telling us about the fights that we would inevitably have, and it really helped us for the fights that we were already having. Um, but he said that there are these iceberg-type fights that you have to watch out for. Because what happens is that you'll be going along, you'll be going along, and all of a sudden you'll end up in this gigantic argument about something that is not a big deal. It's just not. And um, so you are kind of sit there and you, you are yelling at each other for a little while, and after about 30 minutes... One of you starts thinking, are we really fighting about this? This is so ridiculous. This is so crazy. Whenever there are bigger things you could be talking about, right? And why it's called an iceberg fight is that the iceberg, the thing that you see sticking out of the water is the presenting need. It's the felt need. It's the felt problem, perhaps, in a marriage. But what's under the water? A huge problem. Those are the things that you've been pushing off in your marriage or the problems you haven't dealt with in your life for months, maybe even years. Some of you have stories of, uh, of past um, abuses or different things that you simply have never dealt with, and they have now become this iceberg under the water. And every once in a while, you'll, something will pop its head up, and there'll be a need or a problem in your life that arises, but that you know, and no one else knows, but you know there's something significantly more and significantly deeper there under the surface. Okay, well, that's what's happening with this guy tonight at the wedding, is that the wine has run out. But what's really happened, y'all, is that if the party dies early, his whole reputation, his whole livelihood, his very sense of dignity and worth as a man and as a new husband is going to shatter. 
It's going to crumble. And I know that, well, I know that none of you are married, basically. But let me tell you, as you're entering into marriage, there's plenty of things to think about. <laughs> there's plenty of things to be worried about. You don't ha- want to have to worry your first uh, gig on the job being that you just threw a party that ended early and that everyone's going to be thinking that this was a lame thing and you're a lame bride or you're a lame groom. Okay? But we're going to see uh, that Jesus comes in and meets this need. You know, uh, as you see what happens next is this really kind of interesting thing. Uh, the water, uh, as the wine has, has run out, the word there that we see for run out is elsewhere used uh, to mean fail. So the wine has run out. It has failed this guy. And that's exactly what we get. That's the emotion that is carried in the story that John's telling us about Jesus here. And so Mary, Jesus' mom, uh, turns to Jesus Y'all, and you have to understand that John later tells us this is the first sign that Jesus, this is his first miracle. So Jesus' mom turns to him and says, basically, I don't know what you're going to do, but the wine has run out. Do something. And so what would she expect him to do? I don't know. Maybe she thought he would go kind of jump on stage and try to draw attention away from the fact there wasn't any wine there, or he would go try and make uh, the, the groom feel better about the situation, the inevitable departure of everybody. I don't know. And Jesus' mom didn't either. Uh, but what, what was clear enough through this is that um, Jesus was going to do something. Because she turns around after Jesus has this weird little interchange with her there where he basically says, don't tell me my business. Uh, all I could think of was Billy Madison. Don't tell me my business, devil woman. But anyway, um, he didn't say that. That's my own ad lib. Uh, I'll have to strike that from the podcast. Um, but what's to be sure is that what Jesus does next, no one would have expected. Not many people walking around the first century then were just going around doing miracles, like turning stuff into other stuff and, I don't know, healing people that were, that were blind, uh, picking people up that were lame. No one was doing this. But Jesus was about to do something that was going to catch everybody off guard. Um, N.T. Wright, he's an Anglican bishop. I don't agree with everything he says, uh, but on this, uh, he's very good. He says, Though Jesus hereafter addresses himself to other kinds of problems, we are already witnessing the strange compassion which comes where people are in need and deals with that need in unexpected ways. Jesus' compassion is already starting to be shown where people are in need. And if you know much of the Bible at all, that will be an ongoing theme with Jesus. He comes where there is need. Many of us tonight have needs. Actually, all all of us have needs. Some of us run so fast from our needs that we, we just try to ignore them. Some of us make our lives so busy with activities and with thinking that we're busy and with just doing anything we can other than getting alone with ourselves, perhaps with God, in thinking about the ways that we have needs. Some of these needs are very deep. As I mentioned earlier, some of you have stories that, quite honestly, you're, you're afraid to share with anyone. You may be embarrassed of. But you all have them. You all have these needs in some way. I have them. My wife has them. We all have them. We're humans. We have deep needs. And we're afraid because when we share our needs, they make us feel weak. And we're in a place like TU when we've been made and we've been told that we're so strong, right? Your whole life, your whole high school career, you've got a whole resume that tells everyone how strong you are. 
and how put together your life is. But what if? What if there's a person who not only knew your felt needs, but who knew down to the deepest core of who you are and knew those real needs? What if there is a safe place where you could go and share those needs and open up, have them be revealed? You see, what could have happened in this story is that Jesus could have come and he could have dealt with this situation in a lot of ways. He could have gone up on stage and dismissed the party. That would have actually solved the problem. You wouldn't need more wine because there wouldn't be anybody there. Right? Jesus could come and uh, break your computer screen so that you can't keep looking at those things every night. That would solve a problem, kind of. Or he could come break your floor-length mirror so you couldn't stand in front of it obsessing over how you look. That would address the felt need. That would address the obvious need. But friends, Jesus does not come just to do that. He may occasionally do those things, but what Jesus is coming to do is to come to the depths of who we are and come and deal with our hearts. Because you see, when you just go have your felt needs dealt with, it's going to be behavior modification, and you're going to find some way around it. You're going to find another computer to look at or another mirror to look in or another gauge by which you measure your life and your productivity and who you are as a person. But Jesus comes to right where you are, and he says, no, I'm going to skip that stuff. I'm going to go to your heart, and we're going to go from the inside out. And that's what he's doing here tonight with this, uh, with this man. Some of us are even frustrated with God or with Jesus because we've come with a list of those felt needs. And we've said, Jesus, if you're real, you're going to have to do this. Boom. And you kind of lay it out there before him. And some of us are waiting to hear back. And you think that God doesn't like you, or you think that he's let you down in some way. Friends, I want to tell you that this is, um, that, that God is not necessarily addressing those needs on a daily basis does not mean he is not coming to meet with you. He just wants to get deeper, and he wants to go to the heart of the problem. Jesus is coming to work redemption in the world like we talked about last week. He's coming to recreate everything, to make it new, and he's going to start in our hearts. And then we're going to take it out into the world, and we're going to be part of this recreation. And whether or not uh, you believe it, whether or not you get behind it, it's going to happen. This is already happening in the world. Jesus is coming into our hearts to do that. The way of Jesus is the way of your heart. The gospel says that Jesus loves his people too much to just deal with your external person, to just deal with the externalities around you. He is coming for your heart. And he comes to restore dignity and life, not take it away. This man's life at the party was restored. His dignity was given when Jesus came. And we have to catch that. And friends, where your dignity is given and where your life is restored, you will have joy. It is there. This isn't all that Jesus done. He doesn't just come to bring us joy through satisfying our deepest needs. We also see that Jesus brings joy through setting apart things that seem so common for a use that is anything but common. In verses 4 through 8, uh, after this interesting interchange where Jesus uh, you know, puts his mom in his place, we see that um, uh, John tells us there's these stick, six stone jars that are sitting there. Now, this is weird for us because there are no jars sitting around. We, uh, the only place you see jars is maybe like in a, a designer or interior decorator shop or maybe at your parents' house they have jars up on the mantle. In college you don't have jars because they will get broken. Uh, inevitable. Well, in the first century, 
jars were everywhere. They were just all over the place. In fact, they were so common that when archaeologists go find a city over the Middle East or somewhere like that, they do all their dating through pottery shards. I mean, it's just like the most obvious thing when you have these broken jars, and it's like, oh, yeah, 2nd century Mesopotamia. I mean, it's just they were everywhere, okay? Jars were common, but what is not common is what John tells us about these jars. Uh, John uh, is telling us last week, if we remember, that he says that Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, for the Old Testament, for the Jewish people who are reading this letter and who are hearing this, what they're saying, or what John is saying, what he's trying to get them to see, is that Jesus is the greater temple. That they no longer had to go to the temple because Jesus himself comes and at some point says something greater than the temple is here. And he's talking about himself. And so when he takes these purification jars, as we see, these are jars that would normally be filled with the very means by which people would come into the temple. They would take the water out of these things and they would be cleansed and washed and then they would go to the temple. And what Jesus comes to do is he takes these ceremonial jars and uses them for a completely different kind of ceremony. He's coming to show that the old ways of purification are gone and that something new has come. Our 18-month-old daughter, Nora Klein, who some of y'all met briefly last week, she's wonderful and she's a handful. Um, She's always finding things on the ground and using them for ways they were not intended. (laughs) Um, She combs her hair with with shoes. She puts toothbrushes in her ears regularly. Uh, She loves to eat Q-tips. And... um, she does all sorts of things with, with Mardi Gras beads. We have all these Mardi Gras beads from Sarah's parents. I mean, they just end up everywhere. She'll walk around, there'll be like seven feet of Mardi Gras beads trailing <laughs> behind her on the ground. And so what's happening is that as, as people were seeing Jesus, as the Jews around him were seeing him pick up these jars, they would have been saying, no, 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 don't do that. What are you doing? You can't use those. Just like we look at Nora Klein and say, Nora, no, 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 don't eat Q-tips. Not good. <laughs> Uh, they're for your ears, but we don't even want you to do that. Let mommy and daddy do that. No, ma'am. These people are looking at Jesus and saying, no, no, no. Don't, don't use this. What are you doing? But he takes these jars. He takes them because he is going to do something so much greater through them. He's coming to show them that something greater than the temple is here. That God has come to meet with his people in a new way. And that he is going to bring, bring them cleansing from their sin uh, in a new way as well. You know, I don't know if you're like me, but I get to the part, uh, as we keep reading down, where you get to the 20 to 30 gallon thing. It just kind of catches you off guard a little bit because we are talking about wine. And uh, I get to that and actually did the calculations today. Okay, each jar, I'm going to be conservative and say that each jar was just 20 gallons. That is 605 bottles of wine. Okay, just your average bottle, not your big magnum thing, your big... That is 600 bottles of wine, and the party's already started. Okay, this isn't like the pregame, like from 3 o'clock on. This is like 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock shift, and 600 new bottles of wine show up. Doesn't that feel a little excessive? (laughs) Aren't you thinking, Jesus, you... I get it. I get you're kind of trying to make a big splash here, but you think maybe 100 would have done You know, I don't, I don't know what your experience with Jesus has been. But if at some point you haven't felt the great weight of the excessive love that Jesus lavishes on us, I would think that you maybe haven't missed the Jesus of the Bible. Because again and again, he's doing things over the top that you just think, 
could it be that good? Could he really be that over in the top in love with me? Me? With all that I do? With all that I think? Friends, this is exactly what we see. Jesus come to replenish joy where it was in danger of running out. Another way uh, that we see Jesus bring joy uh, to common things and setting them apart to uncommon use is what he does with the servants here. Okay, there's these servants standing by, which isn't really that uncommon, certainly not common back then, uncommon back then. Even in our day, at a, at a wedding, you have waiters and waitresses who are walking around um, grabbing empty cups and plates that are, that are dirty off to the side. Well, um, you have these servants who are sitting off to the side, and Mary, Jesus' mom, just looks at him and says, after Jesus had basically said, don't tell me my business, uh, he looks over them, she looks at them and says, just do whatever he says. Okay, they're t- sitting there, take that. Um, let us not forget that this is the woman who got pregnant with Jesus without, I don't know, having had sex. And so um, she knows that he's special. Um, she has lived with him up to this point. She knows that he's an exceptional person, but she's basically telling the servants, I have no clue what he's going to do. But he's going to do something because he can, and I know that he will. And so the servants are just standing there. And what's their response? We really don't know. All we, all we know is that they're obedient. And that whatever Jesus tells them to do, they do it. And what's the reward that they get? They get to witness and take part in this great miracle that Jesus is doing. You know, have you ever been on a mission trip or maybe talked to friends who have been on a mission trip where you're so just gung-ho about going because you want to go help people? And you want to go serve those who are less fortunate than you. Um, a lot of people actually think this works in, in, a con, uh, in a negative way. They call it the great white hope as a bunch of uh, white people go to places like Africa and tell, them why, tell these people who are poor why they should be like Americans. And so it can be a really bad thing. But if you've ever gone and wanted to see good come out of uh, your, your helping people and you're serving them, then what are the stories, how did you come back? What are the stories that we so often hear? Man, I, I went, you know, I went down to Ethiopia to really to serve this village. I came back changed. I, I was going to do it for them, but I'm the one who's changed. Or maybe you've helped out on a youth mission trip or something, or a youth group, uh, at a youth group, and you go to serve them, but you're the one who ends up being changed. Well, uh, that night, uh, as these servants were there, uh, their lives undoubtedly were changed as they carried what they thought was just a glass of water we don't know when it turned to wine. They thought maybe they're carrying a glass of water to the master. But what if you um, were expected? Uh, no, no, what do you think happens when God calls you to serve? Again, many of us will run. We'll run when people start talking about mission trips. And when people will start talking about um, evangelism. Oh, my gosh. Send me to the hills, right? I don't want to go knock on doors. I don't want to go to Subway and like hand the guy not a real $5 bill, but it's actually a tract. Like, oh gosh, don't make me do that, Jesus. Don't make me. Well, um, the first time that the Greek language here tells us that the water became wine is when the guy is drinking it. So as I mentioned, the servants are walking up with what very well could have been just a cup of water. You think they felt stupid? Like Jesus had told them to take the guy this watery wine. We don't know what it was. And they're walking up like, Okay, this is water. I'm about to go to the master of the feast with a cup of water. Right? They probably felt a little ridiculous. You could imagine. You know, it's a wonder that Jesus didn't just do it all on his own. That he didn't just turn the water to wine and take it to the master himself. 
It's a wonder that he didn't, because he certainly can. He certainly could have. And friends, it's no less a wonder that Jesus and God, as he works through Jesus, they love to do things through the church. That they love to take these broken people like that are in this room, that may be in the church that you go to, or the church around Tulsa and around the world, that God loves to use the church to be his hands and feet. Because he could certainly do it all. He doesn't need you to witness to your friend. He could do it in a dream. I've heard of it. But is there not great joy that comes with participating in what, what, in what God is doing? Is there not great joy that God brings us by inviting us in to the great story of redemption and recreation? And that's what we see here as God is using these servants. He just brings them. They're, they're just standing there. They don't even offer. They're told what to do. But they end up with this blessing by seeing uh, what God is doing being a part of it. Thirdly, we see that Jesus is bringing joy to us and to our world and to this, uh, this story tonight through serving us in abundance. We've already kind of hinted at this with the 600 <laughs> bottles of wine thing. Let's briefly reread verses 9 through 11 so we can see it more clearly. It says, When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Everyone serves the good wine first. And then when everyone's drunk, then they bring out the cheap stuff. In this beautiful picture, you have this bridegroom whose reputation and standing his very dignity in life, his future, as he's just now embarking in this marriage, his future as a husband, as a leader of this home, was in jeopardy. And now you have this wonderful scene where the master of the feast, the person who has gotten you into the country club, right? He's the person with the membership. He's now turning to the bridegroom and praising him and just doling out love for him and just can't believe what he's done. You've saved the best. To- Nobody does that. Gosh, you're, such, you're, you're so amazing. Thank you. And he's just over the top with this guy. You know, what role did the bridegroom play in all of this? What role did he do? You know, he's kind of a non-character in his own story, isn't he? He, he kind of shows up in the beginning uh, with this great need. I and mean, they're talking about him, but he's really not even there. And then he shows up here at the end to have praise lavished on him by the master of the feast. He's here. He receives joy for something he didn't do. His life and dignity are restored uh, by what this man named Jesus did for him. Friends, that is called grace. It's 100% what someone else does for you. Jesus has come and graciously restored this man. This account of Jesus turning the water into the wine, this is the gospel. This is the message of Christianity. And so if you never come back, I want you to hear this tonight. Imagine if you were the bridegroom standing there, and the master of the feast starts coming up to you, and he starts telling you about how good the wine is and how thankful. He just can't believe that you would save the good stuff until now while everyone's hammered. I can't believe you'd bring it out now. Wouldn't it be a little silly if that bridegroom or if you in that position would start saying, well... You know, I did, it was hard. Uh, 
I had to fly it in from Australia, and that's hard because we don't have planes these days. So, I mean, gosh, it took eight months getting here through boat, coming up the river channels, and it's good, isn't it? It's the 30-year reserve. Yeah, I didn't spare any expense. It sounds silly, right? And that bridegroom would have never have done that because why? It would have been the most bold-faced. He couldn't have kept a straight face doing that. It would have been such an obvious lie. Doesn't it seem silly then that Christians... When others want to ask you about your, your relationship with God, you start talking about all you've done, all that you, you do for God, for the people you witness to, for the Bible studies you lead, kind of, kind of what a good person you are and how Jesus has come and rounded you out a little bit. Doesn't that seem silly? Because that's the picture of what we get here. And that's why people don't, don't want Christianity from us. It's because we're telling them uh, what the good things we do for God are. And we rob Jesus of his glory. His glory is not manifest when we do that. But you see, why the master is praising him is not just that uh, Jesus has brought wine. Right? Because Jesus could have brought wine. He could have actually just brought some more of the same cheap wine that was there, or, or the, the normal wine that was there already. Already? And uh, the guy's problems would have been solved, wouldn't they? He would have had more wine. The party would have gone on. His dignity wouldn't have been lost. But what happens? What is the master praising him for? For the abundance of his sweet wine, the best wine. This man saved the best wine until now. Many of us think that when we become Christians uh, or trust in Jesus and the gospel, as it's called, um, that he comes and makes us pure and new. And he kind of comes and restores us and makes us break even. Right? He gives us a new start. And in kind of in, you think in numerical terms, he brings us from a negative account to zero. We just get a fresh start. And you get a life just as if you had never sinned. And that's what some of us maybe have heard about what Jesus has done. We've been justified, just as if we've never sinned. But friends, that's not what we see here. It's not. What John is telling us is that Jesus has come and brought the best wine for you. And that he comes with all of the goodness of his life, all of the righteousness, all of his obedience to God the Father, everything good that he's done. And you want to know what he does? He gives it to you. He credits it to your account. That's crazy. That's overwhelming. Friends, when you realize that this is the gospel, Jesus doesn't just set you to zero and say, take off, good luck with that. You know, have fun in life. I hope you can lead enough Bible studies. Friends, that will, be depre- that will rob you of joy. But when you realize that Jesus has come, that he has lavished on you all blessings because of what he has done, he's giving you everything good about him, so when God now sees you, if you trust in Christ, when God now sees you, he sees Jesus. He literally does. He sees Jesus and his righteousness. Jesus not only pays your debt, he not only covers your problems, but his whole life of good works is credited to your account. When you take your eyes off of yourself, put them on Jesus, put them on what he has done, you will know, you will know, you will experience, you will feel that Jesus has come to bring joy. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana of Galilee. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
if this is the message the church takes forth, is this, if this is the message that we as Christians or some of us non-Christians, if this is the message that Christianity takes forth and says, no, look, it's not what I've done. It's not of all the things I'm doing, the service projects. I'm going. It's just not. I do these things because what, of what Jesus has done for me and because I want to. He's given it all for me. He has given me all of his goodness and his righteousness. I just want to serve people now. I don't know. It seems stupid that I would go to Peru for spring break and serve in a hostel or a, uh, a, um, an orphanage rather than go in Colorado and go ski. I know it seems stupid. That's what I want to do. Jesus has done that to my heart. He's given everything for me. I could give him a week. Friends, if that's the message that Christianity takes forth, and if that is what is motivating us, people will be drawn to it. You know, when the thought of your heart, as you think of Jesus and your relationship with him, if the thought of your heart is, look, I am just overwhelmed that Jesus would come to me at all. With all of my dirty thoughts, with all of the ways that I think of others, with the things I do to others, I'm just overwhelmed that he would have anything to do with me. Much less credit me with all of his goodness. Much less visit me and give me the very best. Friends, when this happens, when this is a message we proclaim, Jesus' glory is manifested and people will flock. You will come. When you look at Jesus, what is he has done, you will come. Because he's coming to bring dignity and joy and restore your life. If Jesus comes to bring us joy by serving us in abundance, think about it. What's the most abundant thing he could give us? If you could just, what's the most abundant thing he could give us? The very last phrase in verse 11 says that the disciples believed in him. The word there for in him really means this. The disciples believed into him. And that sounds almost the same, but it's just not. Because what they realize is that if they were to ever partake in Jesus' goodness, they had to get into him. He was where the joy was. He was where the righteousness was. It was all in him. The disciples had to find themselves in him. Think of it like this, and we'll close with this illustration. What happens at a wedding? What happens at a wedding? I, I hate weddings until about seven or eight years ago. I will. And that's probably most of what you're thinking out there right now. Um, weddings were nothing special. They were something my parents drug me to. They were boring. People danced. I sat on the sidelines and watched. Occasionally ate some good food, and that was a nice perk. But by and large, weddings were not fun. I know all the girls are out here thinking, you are crazy. (laughs) Weddings are amazing. Well, I realized about seven or eight years ago um, something about weddings that a pastor was talking to me that changed, it it really changed my life, and that's not an exaggeration, but it certainly changed the way I saw a wedding. And he was talking to me what was happening as the two are becoming one, the wife is, they're doing these vows. And at the end when, uh, you know, the pronouncement is made, uh, I now pronounce you Mr. and Mrs. Corbin. Right now, I pronounce you Mr. and Mrs. Smith. What's happening? Is that, is that wife being forced to marry him, to take his name, to kind of assume herself under him or into him in this new family? Is she being forced to do that? In our society, at least, she's not. <laughs> um, I realize it happened somewhere, but um, at least in America, it's not. But you see, leading up to that moment are countless times where this guy, this, her husband now, has laid down his life for her. And he's served her 
and he's given up things for her. She has seen that he loves her. And all she can do is come up under him. That is the natural response of her heart is that she wants to get into him, into his name. Friends, that's what's happening with the disciples here. It was that when they see Jesus' glory manifest in what he has come to do and how he's come to lavish us with his righteousness. They want to get into him. They cannot, they cannot walk. They must run. They needed to get into Jesus. And friends, as, as people who may not, know, may not know Jesus at all, your number one need is that you have to get into him. And if you're a Christian here tonight, your number one need is that you have to find your life in him. You have to get more into Jesus because that is the source of joy. And it's no surprise and it's no coincidence that Jesus starts his ministry at a wedding. And he comes to bring this great joy at a wedding because the same John, the same writer, writes another letter called Revelation. And there's another wedding there. It's called the Great Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Where Jesus is there. And Jesus is getting married to this thing called the church. Who, if you're a Christian, uh, you're a part of that. And the amazing thing is, is that you don't deserve to wear white at that wedding. We don't. I don't. You don't. But Isaiah the prophet tells us that though your sins be like scarlet, 